Matthew chapter 11, verses 16 to 19 and 25 to 30. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. And we sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. If you would, let's pray, please. Lord, uh, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you, Lord, for our worship this morning. And Lord, we pray as we continue to uh, read your word and hear it proclaimed, Lord, that you would uh, be honored by it and glorified by it. Lord, that you would pour out your spirit among us, Lord, to understand and to believe what we hear and what we read. Lord, that what you have inspired Lord, we pray for the rest of our worship this morning as we come in Eucharist together, Lord, that, Lord, our worship would be in spirit and in truth. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we come to this text this morning, um, especially probably due to our own current events, we, I think we can easily relate to some of Jesus' comments here in these first couple of verses, right? Because similar to Jesus' generation, now, obviously, technology and 2,000 years notwithstanding, Similar to Jesus' generation, our own generation is never satisfied. Our generation, if you give it what it desires, it's never good enough for our generation. Give me more. Or just go a little bit farther. One domino falls and 50 others fall after them. Our generation, like Jesus', is broken and blinded because Christ... Has, not, has been revealed not to those who are wise or understanding, as the world counts wisdom and understanding, but rather Christ has been revealed to the little ones. He's been revealed to these little children in the eyes of the world, to those whom Jesus has just told us God has chosen to reveal himself through Christ and whom Christ has chosen to reveal the Father to. And so in these first few verses that we see, and you see the little dots there about halfway through that kind of breaks this section up really well but these first few verses Jesus begins with as he is wont to do an illustration right he uses imagery to his advantage and this imagery this illustration really sets the context for the whole passage of what he's about to lay out especially the more familiar part of this text 
And so he begins here by comparing his generation to a group of children who are petulant. These children who choose to sit and do nothing despite the calls of other children to join them in play in the marketplace. And a lot of commentators tried to make a lot of big deal out of this game, you know, uh, playing a flute, singing a dirge, you know, these are wedding songs and funeral songs, and there is a purpose of this illustration, but I don't know if the game itself is the point, rather the illustration itself is to show them that they are immature, they are foolish. And Jesus is telling them that no matter what God does among them, no matter what sign God gives them, no matter whom God sends to them, they will never be satisfied with what God is doing. That's Jesus' point. This is the fallen human condition. But Jesus then tells them directly, particularly in verses 18 and 19, that they complain that John the Baptist was too ascetic. Right? He was too pious. Right? And so because he was too ascetic and because he was too pious, obviously then he had to have had a demon. Right? That's, that's their point. But then at the same time, they start to grumble because Jesus was too joyous, right? Jesus was too merciful. Unlike John, Jesus came drinking and eating, like when we read a few weeks ago that he ate and drank with Matthew and his friends after he calls Matthew the tax collector. And so they accuse Jesus then of gluttony. They accuse him of drunkenness, and they accuse him of bad company. Basically, to use the phrase, what they were doing is they were speaking out of both sides of their mouths, right? Everything they said was a contradiction. And so he says here, like disgruntled children, this generation found it easier to whine and complain than to simply play a game with their friends in the marketplace. Than to consider, they found it easier to whine and complain than to consider the amazing work that God was doing in their midst in the persons of John the baptizer and then Jesus the Christ. In effect, what Jesus is telling them here, he says, you hate the preaching of repentance that John preached. And you hate the preaching of the good news of the kingdom of heaven that I am preaching. Nothing is going to satisfy you. And this illustration then of these, of these first couple of verses helps really, again, to set the context of the bombshell that Jesus is about to drop through the rest of this passage. And here, for me, this is where it starts to get interesting, especially in verse 19, where he begins with the Son of Man, and we'll read it in a moment. It gets interesting because at the end of this verse, Jesus says this. He says, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. That's a very cryptic statement for us, right? But it was not cryptic for Jesus' hearers. And it was not cryptic for Matthew's original readers. So what I want to try to do for a few minutes is make sense of this cryptic statement because it does completely inform the familiar part of the rest of this text, of come to me, and the Father chooses to reveal the Son. All of this is filtered through this last part of verse 19. So Luke, just to to begin to back up a little bit, Luke records this exact same scene in chapter 7. And in chapter 7, verse 35, I'm going to tell you what he says. You can turn there if you want, or you can write it down and look later. But Luke actually uses one word differently than Matthew in this scene. So Matthew tells us, he says, wisdom is justified by her deeds or by her works. But Luke tells us that wisdom is justified by her children. Again, this is interesting to me. Right? Because if you, just, if you just glance over the passage that's in your bulletin, you realize twice Jesus explicitly uses the word children. 
but three times if you infer children in the term playmates, and four times if you want to switch the word deeds or works for children in this passage. So this idea of being a child of God permeates this entire text. But more importantly, I think, or just as importantly, the other idea that permeates this whole text is the idea that the wisdom of God is incarnated. Now this idea, going back to this being a cryptic statement, this would not have been cryptic to Matthew's readers or to Jesus' original audience. They would have been very familiar with this idea. Because personifying wisdom is not a foreign concept to the Bible, nor is it a foreign concept to Jewish theology or Christian theology. So to see how, this is where I want to spend a few minutes doing some legwork, because we can see this both biblically and interestingly, I'm going to use a big word here, it's Connor's favorite word on this, is deuterocanonically, right? This word, this idea of wisdom being personified is both biblical and apocryphal, right? And they both inform Jesus' words in this entire text. So last year, uh, for about a month or so, Connor actually spoke and talked about, talked about in Sunday school on the deuterocanon or the apocrypha. And now, I, let, me, let me go ahead and put this disclaimer out here, right? We're good Protestants, so I do not want you to, to assume that I'm elevating any of these works to the level of inspired scripture. I'm not doing that, right? We would agree that these, were, these works do not belong in the canon of scripture. But we can at least agree and understand that they were known by the first century church and by Christ and by the first century Jews because Jesus directly quotes them in this passage. And he references two deuterocanonical books. So in both of these deuterocanonical books, along with the book of Proverbs and even the Apostle Paul, understood an incarnation of the wisdom of God, particularly in the person of Christ Jesus. So as we read these, I want you to keep these words in mind as we move to the familiar text. So I'm going to bounce around for a moment. So first, then, to ease our Protestant anxieties on this aspect of the Apocrypha being brought up in a Protestant church in a sermon time, we're going to first go to inspired scripture and go to the book of Proverbs. Right? right? We're, going to, we're going to start and do the right thing. Right? So let's look at the book of Proverbs, chapter 8, which I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I am going to read a chunk of it. And Solomon here writes an understanding of the incarnation of the wisdom of God. So beginning in verse 1, I'm going to actually read the first 12 verses. He says this, Does not wisdom call, and does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud. To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Here, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right, for my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous, and there is nothing twisted or crooked in them. You see why the early church saw this as Christ? <laughs> they are all straight to him who understands, and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell in prudence, and I find knowledge 
and discretion. Verse 15, By me kings reign, and rulers decree what is just. By me princes rule, and all nobles, all who govern justly. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently will find me. Skipping to the end in verse 32. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise, and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, watching and waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself, and all who hate me love death. So keeping this idea of wisdom being incarnated in Christ, are you as intrigued as I am at this point when he says wisdom is justified by her children or by her deeds? This is interesting. But now, listen, just, just for the sake of argument, because Jesus, again, does actually quote some of these, and this idea permeates this literature that he would have been familiar with. So listen to the wisdom of Sirach, chapter 24, verses 1 to 7 and then 30 to 34. Wisdom will praise herself, and in the midst of her people, she will boast. In the assembly of the Most High, she will open her mouth and boast in the presence of his host. I came forth from the mouth of the Most High and covered the earth like a mist. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, let there be light. I came from the mouth of the Most High and covered the earth in mist. I pitched my tent in the high places, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And my throne on the pillar of the cloud, I alone encircle the ring of heaven, and I walk in the depth of the abyss. In the waves of the sea and all the earth and all the people and the nation, I have gained a possession. With all these, I have sought a place to rest. And what inheritance will I lodge? I went forth like a canal from a river and like an aqueduct into a garden. And I said, I will water my garden and drench the garden beds. And behold, my canal became a river and my river became a sea. And I will make instruction shine like the morning. And I will make it shine far away and yet pour forth teaching like prophecy. And I will leave it behind for future generations. And you can see... I have not labored for myself alone, but for all who seek wisdom. Those final words sound a lot like wisdom being justified by her deeds to me. And then one more place, the wisdom of Solomon in chapter 8. He writes this, Wisdom stretches out from one end of the earth to the other, and she governs all things well. I loved wisdom and sought wisdom from my youth and desired to take her as a bride for myself. And I became a lover of her beauty. Wisdom glorifies her noble birth by living with God and the master of all who loves her. For she is the in initiate of the knowledge of God. And one who chooses his works. Now if riches are a possession to be desired in life, what is richer than wisdom who works all things? And if discernment shows itself in action, who more than wisdom is its craftsman? If anyone loves righteousness, the products of righteousness are then the virtues. For wisdom teaches self-control, discernment, righteousness, and courage. Concerning these things, there is nothing more valuable in the life of man. But also, if, she, if anyone longs for great experience, 
Wisdom knows the things of old and portrays the things, of com- things to come. Wisdom understands subtlety of words and the solution of riddles and has foreknowledge of signs and wonders and the outcomes of the times and the seasons. So I bring these up again not because I want to elevate them to the level of Scripture by any means, but to show that they inform Jesus' words, but also the Apostle Paul, because we actually do have this in the New Testament. Paul tells the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 20, Where is the one who is wise? And where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Wisdom is justified by her deeds. She's justified by her children. What Jesus is doing in this sentence is identifying himself with the work of wisdom in such a way that wisdom's deeds are his deeds. Wisdom is proved right. She is justified by her works. And these works are the actions of Christ Jesus himself because he is the wisdom of God in the flesh. Meaning that Jesus is justified or he is vindicated on the basis of the works that he accomplishes. This is Paul's whole point in the first couple of verses of Romans. But then he actually takes this even further by using the idea of children because justification of wisdom goes out from wisdom. Wisdom is not just justified by her works. Luke tells us that she is justified by her children, meaning that the claims of wisdom are proven true not just by her own works, but by the works of those whom wisdom has sent out to proclaim wisdom's works. So Christ is proven right by his works, and he is proven right by our works. Hilary of Poitiers writes this. He says, The action of wisdom is righteous because she has transferred her gift from the obstinate and faithless to the faithful and the obedient. And Jesus is wisdom itself, not because of his acts of power, but he is wisdom by his very nature. So, with that incarnation of wisdom in mind, let's filter the rest of our passage through that idea. Listen to what he says just in the next two verses. He says, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So he begins here giving a word of thanks to God, but his words of thankfulness sound kind of odd to our sensibilities, right? Because his first thing of thankfulness is that he is thanking God the Father for hiding the eternal truths of himself from some while revealing these eternal truths to others. So, What are we to make of this, right? Because that seems odd to us. So Jesus, what he's doing is he's proclaiming very clearly that the Father is free because he is God, because he is sovereign over all things. God is sovereign and free to conceal or to reveal himself as he desires, including full knowledge of himself. 
So when Jesus tells us here that the Father has hidden these things, as our bulletins say here, he means the Father has hidden the true meaning of Jesus, his message, his miracles, his works, his healings, his casting out demons, and even the true meaning of him empowering us to go out and do the same. These things have been sovereignly hidden from the wise of the world because in their wisdom, quote-unquote, they have rejected the true work of Christ. But at the same time, he has revealed these things to the little children of the world, to the little ones like we read last week at the end of Matthew 10, because the little ones have believed them and have accepted them, and they have received them by faith. So his generation here, much like our own, considers themselves wise and understanding in many ways, but they have had the real and eternal significance of Christ the Lord hidden from their understanding and hidden from their wisdom because they reject the true wisdom of God incarnate in Christ. Paul proclaims very clearly to the Corinthians, again, that the message of the cross is foolishness, it's folly to those who are perishing, to those who reject it. But to those who are being saved, to those who receive it, the message of the cross is the power of God. But just in case we're tempted to do so, let's not think for a moment that God and him concealing these things or revealing these things is directed toward human beings who are somehow innocent or neutral or helpless, right? That this person is more deserving than this person. Human beings are sinners by nature. We are born in it. And God deals with all of humanity as sinners. And this is the hard truth for the wisdom of the world to swallow. God owes us absolutely nothing. He owes us nothing. And so to conceal and reveal these things of Christ is not an act of injustice on one part or unfairness on the part of God the Father, but it is a work of judgment or it is a work of mercy. And it is the gracious will of the Father because he is sovereign over all things to reveal himself or to conceal himself. One theologian from the Middle Ages writes here, he says this, he says, God has hidden the mysteries of himself from the wise of the world, not out of malice, but because of their own unworthiness. Because it was they who chose, in their own fallen wisdom, to reject God rather than to trust him. God tells us in Proverbs Chapter 25, verse 2, that it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it is the glory of kings to search them out. That tells us that if God has revealed and concealed, then our job is to be a king and not put our faith in our own wisdom and understanding, but rather search out the mysteries of God and the wisdom of God found in Christ Jesus alone. So be a king. But then Jesus builds on this this idea of God revealing and concealing, and then he adds something to it in verse 27. He says this, all things, and if you like to highlight and circle, that ought to be like highlighted and circled in your Bible, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now we got to deal with divine choice which is a big old uh uh-oh with some people, right? Because many folks love the idea of the election of God. I'm one of them. But a lot of folks find it hard to deal with 
Because for them, the idea of God choosing or not choosing seems to be unjust based on how we judge justice and righteousness. And so one comment you might hear would be something like, this is totally unfair. It's unfair for God to reveal himself to some and not to reveal himself to others because he is God. But remember, God owes us nothing. He is the creator of all things. But according to Scripture, every one of us is guilty before God. God treats no one unfairly. Fairness would be to send us all to hell because we are sinners. Fairness means that God would not give us less than what we deserve. He does not give anyone less than what they deserve. What we deserve is death because the wages of sin is death. But the gift, the mercy, the righteousness, the grace of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. This is not unfair. When God reveals himself, this is mercy. So instead of assuming then that this is unfairness, let's let the wisdom of God incarnate in Christ Jesus help us to understand this mysterious reality. So after declaring here that the Father reveals these things to little children, Jesus now adds that he is the only agent of the revelation of God. And if your head is spinning here, don't worry, you're in absolute good company because these things have confused the faithful for 2,000 years. right? This is why we have a lot of commentaries written on this. These are the mysteries of God that as kings we get, the, we get the glory of searching them out. So Jesus tells us, though, that it is he who reveals and conceals to those whom he wills. And so there is the self-enclosed world of the Father and the Son that Jesus is revealing to us in these words. And he's saying, look, this world is opened to you only by my revelation. I have come to show you the Father. John tells us in John 1, that Christ has made the Father known. Right? And so he says, all things here, all these things that he mentions here, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. This is all divine knowledge. This is everything about God. You want to know God, you need to know Christ. That is what he is saying. And then he says, no one knows the Father except the Son, and no one knows the Son except the Father. He means this is an intimate knowledge of one another. He knows the Father intimately, just as the Father knows him intimately. And they have a complete and intimate knowledge of one another. Meaning that the only one who can reveal the Son is the Father. And the only one who can reveal the Father is the Son. This is the exact reason why we celebrate multiple weeks of the season of Epiphany every single year. Because Christ has been revealed to the world by the Father. By his birth, in his baptism, in his life, in his miracles, in his transfiguration, in his bodily death, in his bodily resurrection, in his ascension, and by the sending of the Holy Spirit, Christ has been revealed. And Jesus proclaims that the Father has shared His complete authority with the Son, and Jesus, as the wisdom of God incarnate, is the only one who can reveal the Father to the world. This is why Jesus tells Philip in John 14 that to see Him and to know Him is to see and to know the Father. Only Christ can reveal God to us. You want to know God? Know Christ Jesus. And then with this revealing and concealing authority, Jesus, as the wisdom of God, then in the last few verses, offers probably the most comforting invitation to faith in him. And he says, I can reveal God to you, so come to me. Come to me, all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. Not your wisdom, not your understanding, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and I am lowly in heart, I am meek, I am humble. This is what this means. You will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now this statement almost, and I'm going to stress the word almost here, seems like a bit of a contradiction to verse 27 because if Jesus is the only one who can reveal God, then how can all come to him in the first place? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. I'm excited about it. Now let's answer it. For those, so let me do this just to, just to understand what's going on here. For those who may not know, let me give you a mental picture of a yoke, right? Or go and grab your device and Google what a yoke is. Y-O-K-E, not, uh, not Y-O-L-K. You will get a picture of a chicken egg, right? Y-O-K-E, a yoke is a wooden beam that is placed over the necks of two animals, right? Usually this, these are oxen. Sometimes they can be horses, or donkeys or mules, right? And a yoke is designed in order to help those two animals bear and pull very heavy loads, right? So they work in a pair. This is why Paul uses the same illustration about being unequally yoked, right? You do not yoke an oxen with a chihuahua, right? It would be, it would be you know, ludicrous, right? The chihuahua is going to die, right? So, so there are, there are, that do exist single animal yokes, but more typically the load is shared between two animals, right? This is why you see, you know, old pictures of stagecoaches with multiple horses. I mean, what's holding them together are the harnesses and a yoke. And so the illustration that Jesus is drawing for us here is, is very, very simple to understand, especially in, a, in an agrarian society such as this. We can either be yoked to sin and Satan and death, or we can be yoked to Christ. Being yoked to sin is a heavy burden to bear. Jesus is telling us being yoked to himself is a very light burden to bear. It's not hard work. That's his point. And there's a key concept in this this passage that we're likely to miss if we're not careful because the word itself is not in this passage. But the understanding of it is. And that word is the word repentance. Listen to Theodore of Mopsuestia. He says this. He says, Jesus tells us here, from me there is a great and patient endurance and kindness. And seeing such a weight of sin, I am patient and I wait for you to repent. My yoke is good on account of forgiveness and my burden is light because it is not a collection of customs and observances, but it is decisions of the soul. And so this all here that Jesus tells us here, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. He is saying that all who repent and come to me can take upon my yoke. If you repent, then what Christ does is trade yokes with you. You take off your yoke of sin and you put it on the shoulders of Christ, which he took upon himself in the form of a cross. And he takes his yoke off himself and puts it on you. You yoke yourself to Christ. He takes on yours while you take on his. It's that easy. And all it requires is repentance and trust. That's it. And then he tells us in the same passage that there's actually multiple benefits to taking on his yoke. He says, if you take on my yoke, then you find rest. Half of the book of Hebrews talks about our rest in Christ. 
He is our rest in God. He is our Sabbath rest. He is our rest for our complete salvation. Christ is our rest. Another one he tells us, he says, look, if you trade your yoke for mine, I offer you instruction. I offer you discipleship. I offer you a way of life. I offer you the revelation of the Father because you are now a little child. He also says, look, you get rest, you get discipleship, and you actually get a very light burden. He can teach us as the labored and heavy laden because he is gentle and lowly. He is meek and he is humble. One church father proclaims here, he says this, he says, like sin, the weight of earthly masters gradually destroys the strength of its servants. But the weight of Christ helps the one who bears it because we do not bear grace. Grace bears us. And to illustrate this, and then, I'm, and then we'll close. I want to read us a section from John Bunyan's classic, The Pilgrim's Progress. If you've never read this, you should read this. Whether it be in the Old English, which is preferable, but harder to understand, so you can find modern copies. But in this scene I'm going to read you, this, this scene describes the main character, Christian. Bunyan was not subtle in his allegory. The main scene, Christian, who is burdened, he's the burdened pilgrim of the story, and he finally loses his burden. Now, in the story, Christian is wearing this heavy pack on his back. When he finally comes across the word of God, a pack is put on his back because now he realizes his sin. And so in this scene, he loses this burden because he trades his yoke for the yoke of Christ. So Bunyan writes this. He says, Now I saw in my dream that highway up to which Christian was to go and was fenced in on either side with a wall. And that wall was called salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the burden upon his back. And he ran until he came to a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below in the bottom there was a tomb. And so I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from his shoulders and fell from his back and began to tumble. And it continued to tumble down until it came to the mouth of the tomb where it fell in and I saw it no more. And then Christian was glad and he was light and he said with a merry heart, He hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then Christian stood a while to look and to wonder. For it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should ease him of his burden. And he looked, therefore, and he looked again, even until the springs that were in his head sent the waters down his cheeks. Now, as he stood looking and weeping, behold, three shining ones came to him and saluted him with, Peace be with you. And the first said to him, Your sins are forgiven. The second stripped him of his rags and clothed him with a change of garments. And the third set a mark upon his forehead and gave him a roll with a seal upon it, which he bid him to give it at the celestial gate when he arrived. And so then they went their way. And then Christian gave three leaps for joy and went on singing and said, Thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in till I came hither. Oh, what a place this is. Oh, blessed cross. Oh, blessed tomb. Oh, blessed rather be 
the man that was put to shame for me. So beloved child of the living God, Christ Jesus, the wisdom and power of God incarnate, would say to you, come to me if you are heavy laden. Come to me if you are weary and burdened. And only I can give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am the wisdom of God. I am gentle and I am meek. I am humble. And in me you will find rest for your soul. Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light.